Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. Uh, Keith did a wonderful job last week walking us through the reality of Jesus Christ as our perfect priest. This morning we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ coming as our sacrifice. And this is a difficult concept to grasp that we are at a point, every one of us, that we need a baby. We need the one to come in the manger to pay our sin debt. I think a lot of times in life, I know I am this way, we go through and we think, I've got my life largely under control. And I've been a Christian for some time. And I read my, my Bible and I, I pray with my wife and I, I grow as a believer and I, I, help, I pastor a church. And then I go on a 12-hour road trip and I realize the Lord has a lot to work in my heart and my life. It only has to get cut off about 15 times to realize the Lord is not done with me yet. There is a great amount of selfishness and sinfulness still in my heart. Every season of life that we go through helps to uncover yet again a reality that there is more selfishness and more sinfulness as an offense against our holy, righteous God than we ever even realized. Every season, every season that, that comes, every move that you make, right, every place that you travel to, every new season of life, you, you get married and you realize, wow, I've, I'm much more selfish than I realized, and you start to get that under control. And then you have a child, or you go through the opposite and you're unable to have children. And you realize, wow, I didn't know this existed in me, this level of selfishness or sinfulness. And every season of life, even our older saints who have lost spouses or children, they go through this season in reality that it uncovers within us a whole new level of depravity that we didn't realize was in there. What I think all of us would naturally do on ourselves is we'd say, you know what, I recognize that sin is bad, but I just need more help. I recognize my sin is bad, but I, but I need just a little more time, a little more education, a little more improvement. I'm getting close. And what the reality of the arrival of Jesus does, the one in the manger, is it's a reality is I don't need a little help. I need a, a holy sacrifice. I need the Son of God in flesh, the, the number two of the Trinity, to come and to take on flesh. And to not simply to bleed, but to give his life up as an offering for my sin. So as we come to our text of Hebrews chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you. Please uh, grab and follow along with us this morning. We're going to uncover these two tenets, these two realities that I hope will impact every one of us so that when we're in a season of life, a new season of life, when we realize, you know what, I've, I'm a little more broken than I realize, that we would look to Christ and we realize and remember this baby that would come and pay the debt because our sin is so great. But that it would also be, at the same time, a great comfort to every one of us. A comfort to know that God knows us in our depths. And he paid that debt that we could never pay for ourselves or for one another. That's the king we worship. That's the one who comes in a manger who takes on flesh, lives a sinless life, lays his life on the cross as a make-right sacrifice that he would raise again from the dead, ascend to heaven, and he will indeed come again to bring in his kingdom. That is our king. That is Jesus, the one we celebrate. So as we go to the text this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, 
we're going to notice first and foremost that the consequence of our lawless sin, again, sin is lawlessness, as it's defined for us in 1 John. It's breaking the law of God. The consequence of our lawless sin necessitates a bloody Messiah, or a bloody mess. Spoiler alert, that's going to be number two, a bloody Messiah. It necessitates a bloody mess. And when I say that, I don't mean as though to confuse you to say that the blood of Jesus is magical uh, or that the blood of animals sacrificed in the Old Testament is magical. It's not. That the giving of blood, life is in the blood. It's the giving of life that is significant. So a way to say that the bloody mess is to say the giving up of life that had to take place in the Old Testament, pointing forward to this one that would come and ultimately and perfectly give up his life for us, this human being. The consequences of our lawless sin, it necessitates a bloody mess. There's two elements we're going to notice from verses 1 through 4. The first is this, that the frequency or the quantity of the sacrificed blood of animals, it cannot make us perfect. The frequency or the quantity of the sacrificed blood of animals, it cannot make us perfect. It cannot make you right with God. It cannot bring us to a point of drawing near to God. It just doesn't qualify. Let me read for us verse 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 10 from the ESV. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any con- uh, consciousness of sins? There's a picture from the very beginning of a shadow, that the law is but a shadow of the good things to come. Shadows change our perspective, but it's not the shadow, it's the light that hits it and causes a change of perspective in our lives. That's what light does. It changes what you thought you saw, Clearly. And what the cross does, the author says, is for the Hebrew, remember he's writing to to primarily ethnic Hebrew believers. This this church made predominantly of ethnic Hebrew believers, this congregation, and several of them are being enticed to abandon Christ and and go back to Judaism. And the warning for them is this, this picture that if you try to go back to a previous sacrifice, you go back to a sacrifice that is not sufficient. And a matter of fact, that sacrifice was but a shadow of the things to come. It was a shadow of the cross. What light does is it changes our perspectives. I think one of the sweetest things of being able to be around children on a regular basis, whether you have children or grandkids or you just are able to spend time with kids during the holidays, is watch their amazement. Watch their amazement with simple things. The things that have become normal to us. Children, it's amazing. So children, when they go and they discover a light switch for the first time, have you ever seen this? They go and they discover a light switch and they turn it on and off and on and off and on and off and they just don't stop. And it's not that they just are amazed with switches. There's other switches they can play with. They're amazed because they're able to cast shadows instantly. They're able to turn light on, which changes our perspective. And here the author says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, light changes our perspective. And that's exactly what the Lord does at the cross. It changes our perspective of understanding that of old, the sacrificial system that had to be made continually, every year, sacrifices made. 
They had to continually be made because the sacrifice wasn't sufficient. But Christ comes once and for all, the sacrifice is made. The Old Testament was not in vain. The Israelites were not disobedient in making the sacrifices, but the quality of the sacrifice, the quantity of the sacrifice would not suffice to pay for your sin debt and my sin debt. And so every year as this would happen, it would be a reminder that it was just not enough. The problem is, is that we need to be made perfect. The text says to be made perfect. And that's difficult because if you know yourself and you know anybody else and myself included, you know we're not relationally perfect. Sin comes up in our life consistently, but I want to clarify the word, the text here, to be made perfect in the context, in verse 2, is to draw near to God, the perfect one, the holy one. So when we understand the perfect, there's these couple different ideas, is positionally in Christ, positionally, if you've trusted in Jesus, catch this, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your king, to forgive you of your sins and become your king, you are positionally holy. You are positionally, relationally perfect with a holy God. There's no condemnation for you. You are adopted in Christ. But functionally, as you live your life in this process of sanctification, this being set apart for a holy purpose, our lives were progressing in our looking like Christ. And the Spirit works in our lives. He works through context. He works through His Word and, and the body and the ordinances. And he, and he works in us to shape in us into the image of Christ to sharpen us. And so how can we be made perfect? How can we draw near to Christ? So when you hear the word being made perfect, I want you to think draw near. So I'll say perfect and you say draw near. Let's, let's be a cheerleaders for a moment. So uh, perfect. Perfect. Go team. All right, we got it. I did it. I live in the dream up here. To be made perfect is to draw near to the Lord. And the, the sacrifices of animals of old, even pure animals, even expensive animals, they were not qualified to help us to draw near to the Lord ultimately. Even though they did exactly what they should have done at the temple and the tabernacle in making these sacrifices. The skeptic comes to the Old Testament as you begin to read the Bible and you get to Leviticus. If you're going to begin a Bible reading plan, I encourage you to do so. And a matter of fact, don't wait till January 1st. Just begin a Bible reading plan Soon, I'll just begin one today. Read one if you're married, read one with your spouse. If you have kids, start reading one with your kids. Right? Read one with a friend, just, just, just choose to plug away. The Word of God sown into your life will not be in vain. But as you begin to read, you'll get to Leviticus, and you can't get through the book of Leviticus without the smell of blood in your nostrils. It is such a bloody book. It's bloody and it's particular about who can make the sacrifices and how the sacrifices are to be made. So specific, so bloody. And you read the book and you think, wow, sin is serious. My sin is costly. Look at all the bloodshed that has to happen, all the life that's given up. And then you keep reading and you get to Matthew and you think, what? The one in the manger? The Son of God? No. No. Yes, our sin is so significant that not the bloodiness of Leviticus would cover over our, our sin. The blood of the Son would be required. 
That's what's required. And so the skeptic looks at the Bible and says, it's such a bloody book. But the believer looks in light of the cross and says, oh, Lord, you're so patient with me. That should be me. That should be me. But the arrival of the one, the perfect sacrifice, would take away our debt. The bloody sacrificial system of old, as the author says, it cannot cleanse our insides. Do you notice that? And this becomes in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15. Peter reports back to the Jerusalem council. And he makes this statement. He says to them, listen, the Gentile believers in Christ, the Gentile Christians, they're just like us now as Hebrew Christians. They're just like us. Specifically, he says, that God has cleansed their hearts by faith. The Old Testament, the sacrificial system cannot cleanse their insides, cannot cleanse their conscience. But the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, can do so, and he has done so. So the quantity is not sufficient, but also B, look in 3 and 4, the quality of the sacrifice blood, that is the life-giving of the animals, it cannot take away our sins. Verse 3, But in these sacrifices, there is a a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And being in Texas, it's not unusual to see bulls. I don't know how many longhorns they had there. I remember when Sarah and I were were moving here in June and we saw all these longhorns. It was incredible. I had no idea they were were that, that broad. It was amazing. Even today, it's an expensive Animal. Expensive animal. Imagine the financial costs of having to sacrifice a bull for your sin, for your kid's sin, for your family's sin. Imagine the scene that would take place because of your sin every year these animals would need to be sacrificed because of your sin. Imagine you're a young boy or a young girl and you're going with your family over to the temple and you're traveling there in this big group and there's the animal and you, this pure animal that you give without blemish and it's sacrificed and so it's probably squealing, it's slaughtered, you see the smoke going up, being acceptable to God. Imagine how devastating that would be to you. And on your way home, you covet somebody else, some somebody's stuff. You stub your toe and you curse. You lust after somebody. And you realize, minutes after the sacrifice, oh Lord, my God, my Redeemer, oh Lord, another animal must be sacrificed. Can you imagine the costly debt that it would bring as a reality because of our sin? against a holy and just God. Your cry and my cry would be, Jeremiah 31, I will, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. You'd say, Lord, please bring that to pass. Please. Like David in Psalm 51, you would cry out to God, please, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew my spirit within me. The brokenness and the costliness of your sin would be overwhelming and you would look forward to the day when he would do a new work in your heart. You would look forward to the day when the perfect sacrifice would come. And his name is Jesus. What celebration we have. What privilege you have in Christ. The consequences for our lawless sin, it necessitates a bloody mess. And secondly, the cure for our lawless sin, 
necessitates a bloody Messiah. Not just the blood of the Messiah, but the giving over of the life of the Messiah. The sacrifice of the Messiah himself. Three elements to this. As we've seen in every one of these sermons, in every one of these chapters, Christ is no shock to God. He is foretold of in the Scriptures, verse 5-7. through seven. He is foretold of in the Scriptures. The cure for our lawless sin, it necessitates a bloody Messiah, and this was foretold of in the Scriptures. A 5-7 through seven reads, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Again, burnt offerings for the sins that were, if you remember the sacrificial burnt offerings were done for your sin, and sin offerings were made for the sins that you committed in ignorance. So both of those sides. And he says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. If you look in your footnotes in your Bible, if you're not accustomed to doing that, your Bible is likely filled with just thousands of footnotes to see references and things like that. And you'll notice, specifically through the book of Hebrews, it is littered with footnotes of the Old Testament. And here the author quotes for us from Psalm 40. Psalm 40, 6 through 8. You don't need to flip there because you basically just read it right there in Hebrews. He quotes it for us. And he takes this Psalm of David and he says it's actually really about Christ. It's really about Christ. So he contrasts from the very beginning the sacrifice of animals contrasted with Christ. That Christ was not pleased. He was not satisfied with the sacrifice of the animals. They were incapable. But on the opposite, as you think of Isaiah 53, he was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush him because only the one that would come in the manger, fully God, fully man, is qualified to pay your sin debt and my sin debt. The Lord's holiness necessitates a holy sacrifice. And only Jesus is qualified to pay your sacrifice. That's our great King. That's what we celebrate at the arrival of the coming of Christ. He's our perfect sacrifice. So we can celebrate even in this time. They say it sounds morbid, but He's the one that came to do what? He is the one that came to do your will. He says, I have come to do your will, O God. Quoting from, from Psalm 40. I have come to do your will. That is the battle cry of Jesus in his whole ministry. Now we're going to talk about next week the fact that Jesus is the ruling king, the perfect king. And when you, if you're like me and you think about the manger, I think about the postcard. Like this beautiful scene, really tranquil. As a matter of fact, one of the Christmas carols, right? He, he didn't cry as a baby. It was super relaxed, which from my experience isn't very realistic with babies. It's probably screaming all over the place. I'm just saying. He was a baby. He was fully man. But I imagine the postcard picture, right? You get Joseph and Mary. I'm not sure why I was leaning over like that, but they're just relaxing there. And then you've got the wise men. You've got all the stuff there. When Jesus came, he came as a battle cry. He came as a king to upset everything. He came as a king to destroy the dragon. 
That's our king. The one that came to do the will of God. We don't desire it and we can't do it. But there is one who came to do the will of God perfectly. Perfectly. From his childhood, he would be at his father's house. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he would be praying to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. That's our king and that's our sacrifice. No other sacrifice is qualified to pay your sin debt or mine. And so we rejoice that we have a sacrifice worthy that would come as a, a baby and he would come to lay his life down for us. That's a reason to rejoice. And it's foretold of all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the Scriptures. Foretold of in the Scriptures. And, and secondly, the, the cure for our lawless sin necessitates a bloody Messiah, one specifically that is fulfilling the righteous demands and purposes of the sacrificial system, 8 through 14. We need a cure that will specifically fulfill the righteous demands and the purposes of the sacrificial system. Let's read this together, 8 through 14. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. And by that, will we have been sanctified, set apart for a holy purpose, through the, one, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Again, thinking through the Old Testament system. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered, look at the contrast, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? Was he continually sacrificed? No. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering he has perfected. For how long? For all time. Those who are being sanctified. That is us, the church, the body. We are continually being sanctified, set apart. Jesus came not to do the will of man. He didn't come to do the will of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, political order. He didn't come to do the will of the zealots that came to, to physically upend Rome. He didn't come to do our will. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to perfectly do the will of God. Again, verse 9, it says it again, Jesus came. The author wants to make abundantly clear to us. The author of Hebrews wants to make abundantly clear to us that Christ's coming was foretold of. And Christ's coming was a continuation of the story. The Old Testament has a single thread that runs all the way through. And Christ is the continuation of that thread. The sacrificial system bringing alert and bringing awareness to us of our brokenness and the significance of sin and the massive chasm that exists between fallen man and a holy God. And there's only one who can pay the debt between the chasm that's been created because of our sin against a holy God. And that's the one that would come and would lay his life down on the cross once and for all. Once and for all. He perfectly did the will of the Father. He perfectly satisfied all the demands. And so that you now as one who's been adopted by faith in Christ, you are free to live out the word and will of God. 
You are free now to do the will of God in your life. You were once a captive. The imagery is that of a slave of sin. But you've now been freed to be a slave servant of Jesus Christ, the good master, the one who says, come and find rest. That's our king who's uniquely qualified to pay our debt. There's only one. Do you know him? Do you know this one? We as believers have been sanctified and are being sanctified. Again, let's, let me unpack that word just for um, just like three minutes. If I go longer than that, then don't say anything. Okay, so, so again, sanctified, we think of it in a couple of ways. Right? We're positionally sanctified in Christ, set apart, holy. We're adopted in Christ. When you place your faith and trust in Christ, when you turn from your sin and self and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, positionally, you're adopted. You're holy. You can draw near to God. Christ has rescued you. You are holy before God. So the text will speak of you are sanctified like it's a finished deal because you're positionally holy before God. But then in your life as a believer who's been adopted in Christ, so you're not like 94% Christ or 1% Christ, you are completely adopted by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. At your conversion, you're sanctified, you're made holy legally before God. The righteous demands of your sin, the righteous demands of the law, they have been met in Christ. So you are sanctified, positionally. As your life goes on, you're being practically sanctified or progressively sanctified, meaning we're growing in Christ-likeness. We're growing in Christ-likeness in our life. And He's shaping us. And He's working all things together for good to those that love Christ Jesus. And what is good is to be shaped into the image of Christ. And He's able to use tragedy and pain and hurt and all these different things to cause us to, to pluck areas of our life out, to cause us to lean into Christ and to abide in Christ. And so we grow in our Christ-likeness, continually desiring to be in the hand of God. And yet the more we grow in our faith, and I believe our older saints would validate this here, they've been walking with Jesus for many more decades than I ever have. The more we grow in Christ, what do we, what do we become more aware of? Our sinfulness, don't we? The more we grow in Christ, the more humble we become because the more we're aware of our brokenness and our dependency upon Christ's goodness. This is progressive sanctification. And there's finished sanctification, which is another word for that is glory, right? Glorification, that we're then, ah, with him. So the scriptures speak of when Christ comes back for us, for the bride. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be like him. So we're being sanctified, and in a way, we've already been sanctified. Does that make sense? That can be confusing terminology. It's, it's happening in us. We're being saved, not in a legal sense, but in a way of growing in Christ-likeness as believers. Not earning salvation, not at all, but growing in obedience to the Spirit who works within us. You've been adopted. You're already Christ's. So live like it. That's what we're talking about here. All right, that was only three minutes exactly. I have no idea. We're going with three minutes. We're moving forward on that. So our life in Christ, you have access to God. You have forgiveness of sins, and you have a new and holy identity, believer. You are a holy one. You are a holy one. So live like it. 
That's what the scriptures do for us. That's what God's true identity is for you, regardless of your age, regardless of the areas you're most tempted in, regardless of what you do for a living. You are a holy one. So live like it. And as body of Christ, your fellow members are holy ones. So lovingly and graciously help them and encourage them to live like it. And when they fall, lovingly and graciously help to restore them, pursue them. Because there's one who's come to fulfill the righteous demands of the law. He's our perfect sacrifice. He is foretold of in the scriptures, fulfilled the righteous demands and purposes of the sacrificial system. And thirdly, the cure of, for lawless sin necessitates a bloody Messiah who in his work has done what? He has freed the believer to joyously serve the Messiah by the Spirit. You are freed. You are freed, believer, to joyously serve the Messiah, the Christ. Remember, same word, Christ, Messiah, same idea. The anointed one of God. You're freed to joyously serve the Messiah by the Spirit. Look at 15 through 18. You will notice this. The author says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, verse 16, This is the covenant, promise from God to man. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We are new creatures in Christ. He quotes it, Jeremiah 31, 33. We looked at it earlier. There is now no condemnation for you in Christ. The sacrifice of Christ was so great that as we discover more brokenness in us, it causes us to realize how truly great the sacrifice is for us. That's good news. That's why it's called good news, because the one that came, he took away our bad news. We are truly forgiven. You are truly forgiven in Christ. This is the, the joy for us. That it says what? He has written his law. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. There's a reason there's no more miserable person than a believer in Jesus Christ that is not living consistent to the word of God and the spirit of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was a young man that I was counseling some time ago. He graduated, went off from college, and, and he totally abandoned the church. He cut me off out of his life. It happens from time to time. You've experienced it too, probably. I'd counseled this young man. He had grown in the faith greatly. And just, boom. Second semester of college, never returned a text message, never returned a phone call. I discipled him. He understood the gospel. Cut off contact completely. Entirely. And I would still send him harassing text messages. I promise I didn't enjoy it very much, but sometimes I'd, I'd just say it knowingly. It was the type of thing where you'd see each other in the grocery store and you knew they'd, you know they saw you, but they avoided you. Have you ever had that experience before? If not, I'll avoid you in the grocery store so you can relate to me next time. I'll give an example. I'm just joking. And this young man, about six months later or so, came in after, towards the end of the semester, and he just showed up in my office. And he just came right in. He sat down. He said, I need to talk. 
<clears throat> and he was saying, I am miserable. I am so miserable. And he just started confessing the sins that he was running in with his girlfriend and other things that he was doing. He was just saying, I, I'm just miserable. And I know I'm doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. And I am miserable. And she's doing these things too. And, and she's not miserable. And I, but I'm miserable. And I don't want to do it anymore. And I can't do it anymore. What he was relating to was this. He is of Christ. And believer, you can't run from Christ without being miserable. Because the law is not just written on tablets. It's not just written on your conscience. The Spirit of God who indwells you as a believer has written it upon your mind and your heart. And there's few people in the world more miserable than a believer not living consistently and abiding in the Word of God. That is your rejoicing at the King that would come, the perfect sacrifice. To you there is now no more condemnation. To you there is true forgiveness of sins. And perhaps you and your life are burdened in your sin and guilt with something, and you think foolishly that God could never forgive you, but He can. And He knows components of your and my sins that we don't even understand yet. And yet the debt was paid by the one who would come take on flesh in the manger. That's our king. The arrival of the perfect sacrifice has altered all of human history, bringing true forgiveness first to the Jew and to the Gentile. True forgiveness is yours. True forgiveness is yours. His sacrifice is sufficient, so you and I need to stop trying to earn it. If you've trusted Christ, you're going to church isn't paying him back. You're trying to be a good person or, or, or a good parent or a good spouse or a good employee or a good business owner. It's not paying him back. You've been adopted in Christ. You didn't earn it. So live it out freely. Rest in Christ. The rest is yours. Stop trying to pay a debt that Jesus has already paid. Do you have to remind yourself of that sometimes, believer? I do. Stop trying to pay a debt that the king has already paid. That's our king perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. Look at our next steps. Two questions. Two questions. Question number one, as a Christian, how will believing that the Messiah's blood truly took away my sin debt impact my identity? So think about this for a moment. As a Christian, how will believing that the Messiah's blood truly took away, his, meaning his giving up of his life, right? His blood, his giving over of his life, his dying on the cross, that's the key. How will understanding that Christ gave up his life for me to pay my debt impact my identity? A couple questions that might help you to think through this. Is there areas of your life that you are struggling with confessing it before God? Is there sin in your life you know you need to confess before God? But you're holding on to it. But you see what happens when we do that? We're denying what Christ already died and paid for. So as a Christian, you're free in Christ to confess it. Confess it freely before the Lord. Another application point for this might be the fact that are you basing your identity upon what you're doing or your status in life? Our identity is in the one that came in the manger. It's not in what we do, it's what's already been done for us. He's our king. Question number two to maybe provoke some applications from this sermon text. How is my war against temptation this week impacted by the understanding that the cure I need, the only cure available, the only cure available, costs the life of the baby in the manger? He didn't die as a baby. He had to go and fulfill all righteousness, and he did that. But how is my life altered to recognize that, you know what, Christ died for my sin, so I'm going to wage war against temptation. 
The victory is already mine in Christ, so I can fight it. I can fight it with a grateful heart because my king knows me and he died for me and I will live for him. I will do war with temptation this week. Not as one defeated, but as one who's already had my debt paid. I am freed. I am freed. You are freed to fight against temptation because he has given you a new heart with new desires. Feed the desires of Christ. Feed the desires of the Spirit, not the desires of the flesh. We have been freed in Christ. Before we sing together in response and stand and sing together in worship, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you would send for us the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that we do not have to earn our salvation. As a matter of fact, we know that we cannot. The sacrificial system shows us beyond a reasonable doubt that we are more broken than we even realize, and yet how much glorious is the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross? It is even more glorious than we realize. We truly believe, Jesus Christ, that your sacrifice, Jesus Christ, is sufficient for us to help us to live out as a church body, a lifestyle as forgiven people, showing grace and pointing others to trust the one who can truly forgive their sins. We love you and we rejoice in you because we are yours in Christ. Thank you for your salvation. Would you expand your kingdom in our lives, through us, and to the ends of the earth because you are worthy of, your, of all praise and all glory. And all God's people said together, Amen. Would you stand and worship?